Chapter 5 The Creation of the World Man We will never be able to pray enough to ask Jesus and Mary to open the eyes of our mind and to communicate to us the understanding and light their souls had, which enabled them to perceive the infinite perfections of God, the diffusion of His charity, and the superabundance of His mercy in creating the world and man. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5, 3, 8 How can we understand that what should unceasingly lead us to God should become an obstacle, a screen blocking our knowledge of God? All of Scripture invites us to sing the glory and the power of God manifested by His creatures. Scripture does not cease to remind us of the absolute sovereignty of God over the spiritual and corporeal universe. Our Lord, true God, has shown us that He ruled every creature, and that all obeyed Him instantly. Let us accept with simplicity, humility, and faith the account of Genesis which describes for us the work of creation realized by Him who is the source of all being. Venite adoremus et procidamus ante Deum, ploremus coram Domino, qui fecit nos, quia ipse es Dominus Deus noster. Come, let us adore and fall down, and weep before the Lord that made us, for He is the Lord our God. Psalm 94 It is the only true attitude we can have before the unfathomable mystery of God the Creator. Let us take advantage of the contacts people have with creation, constantly traveling as they are, and help them to see God through the marvels of creatures. Thus, creatures that we are, we shall be led to our proper relation to God, our Lord, and the Holy Ghost. Let us encourage our faithful to live in the country and to distance themselves from the cities, which are becoming more and more places of perdition and scandal. Let them take advantage of available correspondence courses, both for the religious and for the secular education of their children. Not only does all nature sing the glory of the Creator, but it reveals the charity which rules all creation, enabling each creature to attain the end prescribed for it with remarkable perfection, in perfect obedience to the laws established by God, laws of gravity, laws of attraction, laws of vegetation and of the animal kingdom. Nothing in the application of these laws escapes God, except if man intervenes to upset them. The innate charity that the natural laws in this world without intelligence reveal to us should encourage us to follow the law of charity that God has written in our souls, our hearts, and our bodies and that He has deigned to express to us in His revelation. Thus, the work that God in His sovereign wisdom willed to be realized in man is laid open for our meditation and contemplation. This work, without doubt, constitutes a harmony between the material world and the spiritual world, but it also results in a contrast, which was not the case in the creation of the pure spirits.
this union of two worlds, the physical and the spiritual, in one person is both a cause for thanksgiving for the extraordinary gifts of the spiritual nature, elevated by the addition of supernatural gifts, but also a source of humility, and indeed of humiliation, for the soul in this corporeal envelope is dependent in every way on the body if it is to know and accomplish the will of God. That is why instruction, education, and human authority are necessary to help the soul to attain the end assigned to it by God, namely, eternal happiness in the bosom of the Divine Trinity by the fulfillment of the law and with the help of grace. Certainly, God provided our first parents with all the means to obtain this marvelous end by observing the laws imposed by him. But under the influence of Satan, Eve disobeyed the law of God and led Adam to his horrible sin, which was to have astonishing and dire consequences, namely, disorder in his descendants and in all the history of humanity. But equally astonishing was the manifestation of the mercy of God provoked by this fault. God going to his death on the cross in the person of the word, who put on this sinful flesh, yet without sin, in order to make for himself a family of the elect, purified in his precious blood, and members of his mystical body. By this decision, foreseen from all eternity, the Word decided to give himself a mother, the Virgin Mary, immaculate, mother of the family of those he would sanctify. What must be our reaction to this mystery, which was already announced to our first parents? What should be our feelings, we who are not only of the family of the sanctified, but even chosen from amongst the sanctified to become and to be sanctifiers? They must be the feelings of gratitude expressed by the Church in the chant of the exultet, O Beata Nox, O Blessed Night! They must be those of the Church in the prayers of Good Friday, which fervently implore the conversion of all souls to Jesus Christ. What was the intent of the Creator of the Omnipotent God in His creation of man? What did He intend the psychology of man to be, as a creature composed of soul and body? It is impossible to get to the truth about the nature of the different creatures and especially of man, without examining God's goal in their creation. God harmonizes everything in creatures in view of the end to which he destines them. It is characteristic of intelligence, of wisdom, and of a will animated by charity to assign a precise end to each work, each operation, and each being. The desired end is unchangeable necessary and obligatory under pain of grave sanctions for spiritual creatures endowed with liberty. How do we know the end that is assigned to us by our Creator and Savior? We know it by reason as well as by faith in divine revelation and in the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the prophet par excellence. The most serious duty of parents is to make known this end to their children 
as soon as they have the use of their reason. This is done especially by faith. It is also the most urgent duty of apostles and priests to make known to parents the true religion that they may know God, love Him, and serve Him, for ignorance of their end is the worst evil that can befall men. If they do not know their end, they will misuse the means God has placed at their disposal to enable them to obtain that end. Consequently, they will make bad use of their faculties, and especially of their freedom. They will live in sin and place themselves on the way to hell. Their intellect, under the influence of Satan, will make them invent false religions with laws and customs contrary to divine law. The impulse of charity that God has placed in their nature will be used for false goods. Holy Scripture gives us abundant teaching on the sinful man. When the impulse of charity is well directed towards the true final end, it is nothing other than the breath of the Holy Ghost. Then all of the corporal and spiritual faculties blossom under the divine influence of law and grace. The different faculties acquire habits, which are called virtues. Men become virtuous in the likeness of our Lord and of the Virgin Mary. Men grow in perfection and permeate all of their thoughts and actions with the spirit of faith and charity. Thus appears the fundamental principle of human morals, how to achieve a good use of the freedom which is present in human acts, that is to say, acts which are conscious, free, and meritorious, and for which we have moral responsibility. The study of morality can be envisioned either with respect to the law or with respect to the blossoming of grace in the virtues, the gifts of the Holy Ghost, the Beatitudes, the fruits of the Holy Ghost. Catechisms generally study morality with respect to the law, passing in review the commandments of God and of the Church. On occasion they speak of charity and the virtues but only occasionally. Many books on moral theology do the same. St. Thomas preferred the study of the virtues in a more profound way, connecting the commandments with the virtues. The reason for this choice are developed convincingly in the commentary of the beginning of the Summa Theologiae, Ila Ile, by Father Bernard. In effect, the acquisition of virtue is presented to the soul as a magnificent ideal to pursue. It is a blossoming, enriching work of sanctification accomplished by the help of the Holy Ghost so as to attain the goal pursued. This goal is nothing other than accomplishing, in obedience to the will of God, the work of charity towards God and one another that is asked of us, and thus meriting eternal life. This manner of studying the moral and spiritual life inspires us of itself to undertake the spiritual fight against sin, against all malevolent influences of the world and of the devil, and places us in this state of vigilance so recommended by our Lord. Orate et vigilate. Watch and pray. Matthew 26, 41. Watch ye, therefore, 
for you know neither the day nor the hour. Matthew 25.13 In spiritual direction, it is more encouraging to incite souls to acquire virtues and to avoid by the very fact vices than to concentrate on the application of the law. Laws are nevertheless absolutely necessary to direct us in the correct use of our freedom. To wish to define human liberty and its limits without taking account of our final end and of the laws established by God and legitimate authorities is to propagate an illusion. It establishes the principle of revolution in the human conscience. It is the principle of liberalism or rationalism which makes liberty and reason absolute values and not essentially relative to the plan of divine providence. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall have their fill. Matthew 5, 6 It is those who hunger and thirst for sanctity who will have their fill. Sanctity is attained to by the exercise of all the virtues, and especially of the theological virtues which have no limit. We can grow indefinitely, without limit, in our belief in God, our love of God, and our hope in God. The right measure of our love of God is to love Him beyond all measure. This is the object of the first commandment. The moral virtues, both natural and supernatural, have a just measure. That is why the virtue of prudence, helped by the gift of counsel, has its role to determine the correct degree in the use of the virtues of justice, of fortitude, and of temperance in the accomplishment of the will of God. Non plus sapere quam oportet sapere, not to be more wise than it behoveth. Romans 12, 3. The supernatural virtues can lead us to accomplish heroic acts, such as martyrdom, which is the act par excellence of the virtue of fortitude. The virtue of religion, which is connected to the virtue of justice, would seem to have no limit. However, this virtue directs exterior acts of worship, and in these there can be excesses. It is obvious that the interior virtue of devotion is connected with charity and as such has no limit. But when the virtue of religion produces an exaggerated multiplication of exterior acts of devotion or exterior manifestations of disordered devotion, it does have a limit. One ought to refer to St. Thomas or to an approved author for a detailed study of each virtue, of each gift of the Holy Ghost, and of the corresponding vices. See Father de Smet, De la vie et des vertus chrétiennes. It is especially useful for correcting our habitual faults. The study of the virtues is a precious source of sanctification. However, Nothing is as effective in this domain as contemplation of Jesus and Jesus crucified. That is why we are eager to find ourselves near him, to learn from him the horror of sin, and to receive from his pierced heart 
the effusion of the spirit of love, the resurrection of our souls, and the means to remain Christian, participating in his divine life. Divine consortes nature. Second Peter 1, 4 The practice of the virtue of religion, the essential link between a holy life and a life of prayer. Sanctus, 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 Dominus Deus Sabaot. If God is sanctity itself, if we sing of our Lord that He alone is holy, tu solus sanctus, it is that God is the source of all sanctity, and that it is inasmuch as we are united with God and our Lord that we will be saints. But how can this union with God be concretely realized? under the influence of the grace of the Holy Ghost. This union has a name, prayer, oratio. In studying deeply both the nature of prayer and its extension in our human and Christian existence, we become convinced that the profound life of the created spirit must be one of continual prayer. Every angelic or human spirit is ordered to God by its spiritual nature, by its intellect and will, and gratuitously elevated by grace to enter and participate in the eternal beatitude of the Holy Trinity. Therefore, every spirit is fundamentally religious, and its religious life manifests itself in prayer, vocal, mental, and spiritual. Vocal Prayer which includes all liturgical prayer instituted by God himself and by God incarnate and fashioned by the Holy Ghost, especially in the Roman liturgy, is the most sublime source and expression of mental and spiritual prayer. The place of this prayer in the life of the priest is considerable. To neglect it, to limit it, to render it superficial is to ruin the essential prayer the spiritual prayer to which vocal prayer is ordered by the Holy Ghost. It is good to read what spiritual authors such as St. Louis-Marie de Montfort in his Prière Embrassée, Complete Works, page 673, or Father Emmanuel in his Traité du Ministère Ecclésiastique, or Abbot Marmion in Christ, Ideal of the Monk, chapter 13, Monastic Prayer, think on this subject. The chapter by Abbot Marmion is remarkable and would sanctify all priests if his counsels were put into practice. Finally, Dom Chotard in The Soul of the Apostolate, Prayer, the Indispensable Element of the Interior Life. All the saints practiced mental prayer, which is at the same time an effect and a cause of sanctity. Many have written on this subject, in particular St. Teresa of Avila and St. Francis de Sales. This they did because they had a very elevated notion of this life of prayer. Penetrating both the will and the heart, it enables us to attain the end for which God has created and redeemed us, namely, to adore Him in a total offering of ourselves, following the example of our Lord coming into the world, and saying to his father, Ecce venio ut faciam voluntatem tuam, I come 
to do thy will. Hebrews 10, 7. The conception that reduces prayer to vocal prayer or mental prayer is a disastrous one. For prayer should involve all our being, like the prayer of the angels and of the elect in heaven. The petitions of the Pater Noster cannot be separated. The first three petitions are indissolubly linked. Likewise, the first commandment of God cannot be separated from the other commandments. Iniem veni mitere interam et quid volo nisi ut accendatur. I have come to cast fire on the earth, and what will I but that it be kindled? Luke 12.49 The fire is the Holy Ghost, the spirit of charity which fills the Holy Trinity and which created spiritual beings to set them afire with this charity. This burning fire is the prayer of every soul adoring his Creator and Redeemer, surrendering itself to the Holy Will, following Jesus crucified, who offered his life in a great transport of charity toward his Father and to save souls. Whence the oportet semper orare, we must always pray, Luke 18.1. If that prayer ended, that would signify that the Holy Ghost had abandoned us. May we be able to live this ardent prayer of the will and of the heart in a constant manner, even in our absorbing apostolic activities, which should never absorb us to the point of hindering our wills and our hearts from belonging to God. May our apostolate actually nourish and promote our self-offering to God. This profound attitude of our soul, in such great conformity both with its nature and with grace, will foster in it a desire for silence and contemplation which will be fulfilled in the common and private practices of piety. Our spiritual life will find there its unity, its constancy, and its truly Christian peace. These brief considerations open horizons on the accomplishment of the divine will in our daily lives. It is the introduction of this program for our sanctification which must be the thread of our priestly life. Elegit nos ipso ante constitutione mundi ut esemus sancti. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. Ephesians 1, 4. The young seminarian entering the seminary should strive to penetrate with all his soul this life of prayer, which unreservedly hands him over to our Lord and to the Holy Trinity, placing his mind in subjection to revelation, which enlightens for us the Mysterium Christi by the virtue of faith and obedience. Redigere omnem intellectum in obsequium Christi bringing into captivity every understanding unto the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 Placing his will and his entire soul under the impetus of the charity of the Holy Ghost in imitation of Jesus Christ, in obedience to the law of charity expressed by the Ten Commandments and especially by the First Commandment as well as by our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, 
Matthew 5-7. through Thus, his entire soul will be animated with the virtue of religion, and with virtue both natural and supernatural, in union with the sacrifice of our Lord, renewed and continued on the altar. Thus will he be best fitted to ascend the degrees of holiness, the goal desired by God the Creator and Redeemer, expressed in the first three petitions of the Our Father. <laughs>